So 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for having me here for the next few weeks. It's, uh, it's great to be back and bring God's word to bear. Um, I'm sitting next to June, and she opened her Bible to 2 Thessalonians, and there's a little uh, margin note that she'd read it in 18, 18th of the 4th, not 1800, 18th of the 4th, 2001, 22 years ago. So June's probably the most up-to-date um, with 2 Thessalonians, because 22 years ago, isn't that funny, 22 years ago in your book, and 21 years ago the church started. That's amazing. Um, so good. I'm looking forward to... Um, Going through this letter, which is an extraordinary letter, it's a confronting letter and a challenging letter, an encouraging letter, and um, I've entitled the series Hope Shaped Lives. And the subtitle you can see on the screen is What Are You Preparing For? And you can see in the picture that someone's packing for a trip, uh, it seems, uh, in the picture. What are you preparing for? And I hasten to add, if you have children, what are you preparing uh, them for? Perhaps grandchildren, not yet for Jono. What are you preparing them for? Um, what are you hoping for in life? What are you looking forward to next in life and long term? And what you're looking forward to and what your hope is in will shape what you, how you prepare and what you pack into your suitcase that is your life as you go through your life. What you hope for shapes what you pack and how you prepare for what's ahead. What have you packed in your suitcase of life? And what are you packing into your kid's suitcase for life. What are you hoping for them? When Lara and I got married, we went on a honeymoon to Vanuatu. It was July, but it was, it's Vanuatu, so we're hoping for some good weather. So we packed board shorts and swimmers and, and sunglasses. What we didn't pack was an umbrella, and it rained almost every day that we're in Vanuatu. So we packed poorly, 
hopefully we're all packing better uh, for what we're hoping for in life. What you hope for shapes what you pack. I hope I've said that enough times now. Um, what do you pack in your life in order to prepare for what you're hoping for? All our kids have had a heap of swimming lessons because we hope they'll become good swimmers. Because in Australia, you spend a lot of time in the water, at the beach, rivers, backyard swimming pools. We want them to both be able to swim and not drown. Um, so we're preparing for them to enjoy swimming and not drown. So we got them to do swimming lessons. I want you to have a minute now, and you can chat to the person next to you if you want, or you can think on, think on yourself. Think on yourself. Think by yourself. Think on your own. Um, what are you hoping for in life? And what are you hoping for for your children? And how is that impacting what you're packing into your life? Take a minute to think about it. Write some things down if you want. Five more seconds. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, which I know and presume almost everyone is, if not everyone, I wonder how Christian your hopes are. And I wonder how Christian your packing is. How much do your hopes differ from the average Joe and Josephine whose kids come along to this school? As Christians, our hopes and what we pack ought to differ dramatically to the average Joe and Josephine. And I confess, I was... I was rebuked and extraordinarily encouraged by this passage uh, as I studied it earlier in the year when I preached it at Gladswood Hills. John and I came up with this brilliant plan for Ben and I to preach a three-week series earlier in the year and then swap it over at the end of the year so we didn't have to prepare sermons when we're in crazy Christmas season. So Ben's over there preaching the Holy Spirit for three weeks, which he preached here earlier. I hope you'll be encouraged too, and I hope you'll um, maybe be challenged as well as we go through this letter over the next few weeks, to consider what you're hoping in, is it worth hoping in? And based on what you're hoping in, what are you packing into your life? Paul opens this letter in the usual way with his typical understatement of the century. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that our church is named Grace Anglican Church now. The extraordinary truth that cannot be overstated is right there at the front of our church's name now, that we have grace from God. That is extraordinary. And the Thessalonians, our brothers and sisters, way back then, they enjoy grace, unmerited favour from the creator of the universe as well. It's so easy to just say and underestimate in our words and our thoughts and our hearts each day, but we have grace from God, forgiveness from God, reconciliation with him. His wrath has been turned aside and his wrath has been lovingly poured out on his son in our place, the son he loves. For our sake, we've been Firehosed. I used to work in the fire protection industry. We've been firehosed with grace from God, as have our brothers and our sisters 
across the ages, those who lived thousands of years ago, who we will meet face to face one day. We'll meet the Thessalonians when our Lord Jesus returns to take us and them home to be with him forevermore. And we'll be able to talk to them about what it was like. And these truths that we have grace from God give us peace, don't they? We have peace with him and we have peace with one another and we have peace in our hearts because of God's grace. I was talking to a friend recently and she was expressing her great concern for the state of the world and rightly so. And this was before everything kind of started happening on the Gaza Strip, which has been horrific and horrible. And she was just frightened for what was going on in our world. And I totally understand that. And in many ways, I am too frightened for what's going on. But in a real sense, I'm not overly frightened by what's going on in our world because I have peace from God. We have peace from God. Reconciliation with him and one another. Peace in our hearts. We know that God's in control of all things, everything that's happening across the world, even the horrible wars. He's in control. We have peace in the knowing that because of his grace to me and my family and you and our church, we have hope for the future, a steadfast hope. I'm a West Tigers fan. I hope they win the grand final next year. They came last twice. (laughs) They probably won't. It's a vain hope. This is a solid hope in our future because Jesus has already come and he's risen and he promised he will come again. I hope he does and I know he will and I hope he takes us to be with him and I know he will because our hope is in something solid, someone solid, it's in Christ. And so we have peace and everlasting joy and hope because of him. And for Paul, this joy is not restricted to the future He has great joy set before him now in the Thessalonian church. If you look at verse 3 with me in your Bibles, um, I don't put the verses on the screen, by the way. You have to have your Bible. So sorry I didn't warn you about that. If you haven't got your Bible handy, um, feel free to pull out your phone and flick. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. Feel free to flick back a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians and you'll see that Paul encourages them for their love and endurance and hope that is known throughout the region. So the Thessalonians are famous for their great hope and their great love of other people. And then flick forward to 2 Thessalonians, written some months later, And he remarks that their faith is growing even more since the last time he wrote. Reports have come back that their faith is growing more and more. Their love that was already abundant is increasing all the more. They are a church that is growing in their faith in Jesus. And that brings Paul great joy. It's a funny thing to say, growing in your faith. We're going to come to that in a moment. There's no greater joy for a church leader like Paul than to see the church he leads growing in faith and growing in love for one another. 
At one and the same time, faith is a static and a dynamic thing. We can't lose our faith, for our faith is dependent on the object of faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus. And he is steadfast. Our faith is dependent on the object of our faith. At the moment, your faith is on your chair, that it's going to hold your backside up off the ground. And you have faith in the chair. And how much faith you have in the chair doesn't change the structural integrity of the chair. It stays the same. Our faith is in Jesus. And because he is powerful, our faith is steadfast. Because he is our rock, our faith is sure. And once faith is given, Ephesians chapter 2, once faith is given, it cannot be taken away. That is Jesus' promise to us. But then again... Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, you of little faith. And he says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. So our faith is static, but it's also dynamic. It grows, doesn't it? And sometimes it shrinks. Our faith is tested and our faith is strengthened. And sometimes we experience the concept that we're losing faith. We don't have as much faith as we used to. So Paul encourages them to pray. Pray for one another that your faith will grow, that your sense of God's grace to you will grow, that your understanding of his love to you will deepen so you'll be strengthened in your faith. We pray for encouragement when our faith is weak, which happens to all of us from time to time. Of course, faith is also dynamic. We feel weak, don't we? in our faith sometimes, unsure in our faith in Jesus. I think it's something we ought to pray for more often in growth groups. I think we should pray for our physical health less and our spiritual health more in growth groups. I think we tend to gravitate towards praying for our physical needs because they're kind of obvious and in your face and you're feeling them at the time. But I think we should pray for each other's spiritual needs too. So I commend you to do that, to pray for each other's spiritual needs as a priority in your growth groups. The Thessalonians have a sure faith that's been tested by trials and persecution and we're told great suffering and their faith stood the test. They remained filled with hope despite their great suffering. There's actually two types of suffering on display in verses 5 to 10. The first is a suffering that remains filled with hope. And the second is a deep suffering where no hope remains. Look at verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. As a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Paul says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. Or what is evidence that God's judgment is right? What's the evidence that God's judgment is right or just? Is it the fact that Thessalonians are suffering for Christ's sake? After all, Jesus promised that those who follow in his footsteps will suffer. Or is it the fact that despite the suffering, they continue to display display faith? And love and perseverance, which is it? Well, I think it's both. I think it's both. Their suffering is the road to glory. Their suffering is evidence they're on the road to glory. 
Jesus promised those, who, if you follow me, you will suffer. Therefore, they know they're following Jesus because they're suffering. And God's just judgment is good. But secondly, God was using the persecutions of others to refine them and strengthen them and reveal that they are worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. False disciples fall away under trial, like the seed sown in shallow soil in the rocks. When the sun comes out, they fall away. When the heat's upon them, they fall away. But true disciples persevere under trial and in doing so, reveal themselves to be true disciples. Jesus' disciples thanked God for their persecutions and trials because it refined their faith and revealed their faith to be true. God's judgment is good. As the perfect judge, God deliberately allows a time of trial for these Thessalonians to strengthen and to reveal their faith. Ultimately, friends, though, the fortunes of both the persecutors and the persecuted will be reversed. The fortunes of the persecutors in this life who seem to win and the persecuted who seem to lose, in the end, will be reversed. As God's people, we don't despair under trial and we don't despair under persecution because we know that it comes from God ultimately and we know that those who persecute us will one day meet the just judge and they will be judged for their persecution. We know we're on a road to eternal and all-surpassing glory, a glory we dare not imagine, and so we persevere through trial. We don't get disheartened by persecution because we know where we're going. We hope for the future. But for the persecutors, for all those people who live their lives in rebellion against God, all hope will one day be removed for them, as is revealed in the next few verses. Look at verse 6 again. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Relief is coming for those who are persecuted, particularly for our brothers and sisters across the world who live in countries where there's severe persecution, unlike us. Terrible and just judgment for the persecutors and all whose faith is not in Jesus. The first time I wrote this sermon, or when I wrote this sermon a few months back, I finished it at about 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> On the Sunday morning, don't tell Jono. Such was my reluctance to preach it. A day will come when all who have not put their trust in Jesus will face his wrath. I have people that I love dearly. 
who don't believe in Jesus, who have not yet repented of their sin and bowed the knee to him. And I know they have no hope. I know they'll stand naked on that great and terrible day and face the full force of God's wrath with nothing to protect them. And we need to prepare those we love for this day as best we can. In the strength of God, by his Holy Spirit, prayerfully, we must do all we can to prepare those we love for this day. One of my greatest fears is being there on that wonderful day when I meet the Lord Jesus and he separates the sheep from the goats. And some of those people who are led away to destruction look at me and say, why didn't you tell me? The NIV translation is a little bit soft, actually, as harsh as it is. Has anyone got the an ESV with the footnote? Can you, yell, can you read the footnote? Can you see the footnote there? <laughs> I'll put it on the screen. So here's a few different translations. Can you read that? It's black. Um, the NIV says, I'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. The ESV says, I'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The Holman said, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. And the King James says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Romans says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God is in charge of heaven. God is in charge of hell. And those in hell will be separated from God's good presence. They'll not be free to do whatever they want. God still remains in control. But you can see in those different translations, they're, they're shut out from the good gifts, the good graces of the Lord. The reason we have all good things in life, all people have all good things in life, love and kindness and family and friends and fun and laughter, is because of God. They will be shut out and face eternal destruction. And this comes from God. God does not delight in judgment. He delights in mercy. And he longs that all may be saved. Christmas is here, isn't it? In Australia, Christmas is a free kick to tell people about Jesus. We have a public holiday because of Jesus. How good is that? <laughs> it doesn't happen everywhere in the world. Tools down, everyone stops because of him in Australia. We've got this really low bar, easy in to share the gospel with people because it's Christmas. Who can you tell about Jesus? About the glorious riches to be found in Christ? Who can you warn 
about the upcoming wrath of God. Who will face Jesus without who will face God's wrath without Jesus as their shield. Paul's response to these difficult and wonderful truths is the natural response of any Christian. He falls to his knees in prayer. Verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course we pray. We constantly pray for one another. We gather for church each Sunday. We gather for growth group every week with joy, looking forward to praying, praying to God for one another, praying for one another, spurring one another on in love and good deeds. We petition God by the power of his Holy Spirit, to make us all worthy of his calling every week and every day as we go out into the world. We pray that by his power, every desire for goodness in us will come to fruition. Every deed prompted by faith will be completed. What a prayer to pray for one another. Every desire for goodness come to fruition. Every deed prompted by faith completed. The Holy Spirit is constantly giving us, giving me the desire to do good and our sinful nature is constantly pushing back, isn't it? Saying, don't do that. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the struggle with the flesh. What a great prayer to pray for one another. Every time we have that idea of a good thing that we could do or say that it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, that would be good. Please pray for me. I'm full of good ideas, just ask my wife. I'm constantly freaking her out with all these ideas. I've had an idea. And she goes, oh, what is it? But I feel the weight of my sluggish, lazy, sometimes selfish, sinful flesh being an unwilling participant in this good and godly idea. I've got to tell you something. I met with a friend at the, he runs a church down in the Shire. And he said, you know, it'd be great to do breakfast every morning before church. And I was like, that's a good idea. He said... What do you do on Sunday mornings? Have you got time and have you got energy? And I was like, oh. (laughs) And right then, I felt my unwilling flesh railing against this good godly idea. It is a good idea. Why? We need to pray. It's just an exquisite reason to be praying for one another. That God's will, God's will in us will come to fruition. We have this exquisite reality, this incredible hope for the future. So pray that our good ideas prompted by the Holy Spirit will come to fruition so the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in us and us in him. We feel the reluctance to evangelise, don't we? What if it doesn't go well? Or what if I don't like what I say? Or what if I mess it up or something? That's just Satan working against you and your flesh working against you, it's a good idea always to tell people about Jesus, to invite them to the carols, to invite them to come to church. The worst case scenario in our country is they say, oh, no thanks. No one's going to kill you or send you off to prison in our country. Our brothers and sisters who live before Jesus, they dare not approach God. They dare not approach him for fear of death. They sacrifice bulls and goats and doves to atone for their sin. 
but it never did. We have Jesus. Sins atone for. We have a sure hope in the living Jesus because he has resurrected and dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. He is like the filament in a light globe that lights us up to shine in this dark world. Jesus dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, lighting us up to shine. Don't cover yourselves over in fear. I honestly believe that we drastically underestimate the extraordinary kindness of God to our detriment and the detriment of those around us. We underestimate just how good he is to us. And so we forget and we, we doubt his goodness. Our sinful nature obstructs us from falling on our knees in praise first thing every morning as we get up and we thank God for a new day and we thank God for, for Jesus and we thank God for the hope of heaven that we have again this day. On that last day, we will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into his likeness forever in our flesh as well. And in our transformation, his glory will be seen in us and we will glow forever brightly with the glory of Christ as indeed he is now glowing with the glory of his Father forevermore. Any sufferings you've endured will seem light and momentary compared to the glory that will be yours on that final day. How will you pack for that hope? What are you packing into your week next week? What are you packing into your life in light of that hope? What are you packing into your kids' lives in light of that hope? If each day you deeply remember the Lord is the Lord of the universe and he dwells in you and you long for him to shine out, it would shape your day radically, perhaps differently, perhaps not, praise God. If you expected this could be the day that Jesus returns with his angels in blazing fire, what would you do? What would you do differently that day? Would you run around like a crazy person telling everyone you love about Jesus? I think you would. Years ago, when Ray was about six, he's now 15 almost, and he learned that our neighbours didn't know about Jesus, and he said, we've got to go tell them right now. <laughs> he was right. And I totally chickened out. My stupid flesh. Pray for me. Are you prepared for that day? Are you packing the right things? Are your kids prepared? Is your trust in Jesus? Is their trust in Jesus? That's all that matters on that day. That's all that matters. My kids have sport lessons and music lessons and things, and it's great. It's good. Um, they enjoy it. It's good. But they also know two ways to live, the older ones. Um, we're trying our best. It's, it's hit and miss. I'm human. I get tired. We're trying our best to prepare them for that day. And we could be doing better. Pray for me. Will your kids shudder in fear the day Jesus returns because they don't know what's going on? Or will they rejoice and go, here comes Jesus, Mum. Here comes Jesus, Dad. Woohoo! The day has finally arrived because they're prepared. Are you preparing those you love? Are you like a light shining God's good hope into their lives? Or are you covered over with fear or shame or just laziness? 
Jesus' glories ought to mean we're willing to pack suffering and hardship into our bags, in our kids' bags. We're willing to do that each day because that's the road to everlasting glory. The great idol of our day is comfort. We live in a day where we worship comfort. We're terrified of suffering. There's nothing worse than suffering, says our culture. That is so pagan. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to suffer. There'll be persecutions and trials. There'll be hardships. For our kids, they're not all going to win. They're not all going to get a prize. They might have hardships, praise God, if they're following the Lord Jesus for the sake of those hardships. Our land is calling us, our country is calling us to deny our faith, to be silent and not share our faith, to just look for comfort. We must deny our culture and choose the path of suffering and pray for each other and encourage one another that we might be counted worthy of our Lord whose glory shines within us. Our world is in despair, but we have great hope. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you. Thank you for hope. Steadfast, rock-solid hope. Our hope is in Jesus. He is truly God. He is all-powerful. He is all-loving. He walked among us, sinners, ate with us, died for us, rose again in glory. Thank you, Jesus, for all you did for us. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit each day we'll be renewed in our hope. We will grow in our faith. We will pray for one another fervently that we will know the peace and the grace that comes from you. And God, strip away the fear and strip away the anxiety and the embarrassment and the whatever that's stopping us from boldly, courageously sharing the gospel with anyone we know, telling them about Jesus, telling them about church, telling them about what we've learned, inviting them to carols, inviting them to church. Give us boldness, we pray, Lord. May we shine brightly. May we shine the love of the Holy Spirit who dwells within for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.